Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 178 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday morning, August 31st, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, the Mets suck. <laughs> you say that like you're surprised. Well, so here I am. It's, you know, I, I had the rare opportunity to watch some of the the first game of the the seven inning doubleheader, the the Mets second seven inning doubleheader in three days. Right, the the first one was capped off with the Mets hitting a walk off two run home run in Yankee Stadium, which in the bottom of the seventh inning, yeah, which really messed with my. Yeah. baseball brain but so in game one yesterday they take a seven to two lead into the bottom of the seventh which is really the ninth um and two errors two walks a wild pitch and a game tying home run later at seven to seven <laughs> uh uh sick simper i guess <laughs> i mean it's just you know it's just it's just they're just telling me you know stop paying attention to us keep doing well, your exactly work. just just ignore it this isn't really a season this is all just yeah. an extended preseason for next year I, I will say the notion that the mets could hit a walk-off homer in yankee stadium in the bottom of the seventh inning That's really did mess with my baseball brain it's pretty great well so, uh, um yeah so but but there actually is meanwhile around all this weird baseball and basketball and and sort of college football there's also actual national security news yeah we have a we have a good lineup today we have uh four items we're going to talk four about. items Two of them are classic Guantanamo habeas cases. We've like got really some, classic, like, yeah, you know, big 2010 cool. great again. <laughs> we are going to go deep on uh, Al-Hila versus Trump. And also we'll talk about the Uthman ruling. So we have a circuit ruling and we have a district court ruling. We're going to talk about them both. Uh, one of them cites you a whole bunch and, and favorably. <laughs> it's not the circuit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is true. It's not the circuit. <laughs> we are going to talk about the Hatch Act because apparently there's some need for some uh, some learning about the Hatch Act out there. We'll talk about the Hatch Act, and then we're going to talk well, about Bobby. The- nobody, nobody outside the Beltway cares about the Hatch Act, haven't you heard? <laughs> the, the, well, the, uh, exactly. That's your line. <laughs> you your line. <laughs> And then we've got a really, that, that, that side was very me. That was <laughs> on on the Hatch Act. I, I have no. I, there's no daylight there. I suspect uh, United States versus Miscellus is a really interesting and important Fourth Circuit opinion um, about the Anti Riot Act, the Federal Anti Riot Act, and it, it couldn't it couldn't be more timely um, and interesting. So we're going to talk about that little notice decision as well. Great opinion by Judge Diaz. I thought. Um, you know, I, I thought it was actually I, I thought it was a great opinion and I thought it was actually a remarkably thoughtful sort of different splitting analysis by a very diverse panel. Right. With no concurrences, no dissents, just a, you know, a really interesting consensus from a very sort of non-consensus panel. So this, this is part of what I liked about this opinion. And we'll unpack this later. But um, I would put this forward in a context where a lot of what non-lawyers sometimes when they engage with an opinion, it's because there's something very, very sort of flamboyant that's been written, something kind of controversial or something that, that you and I might recognize as not actually very representative of the judicial craft. This is a, a high quality craftsman opinion um, that is is long because it takes the trouble to carefully parse and analyze each little thing. It's very straightforward if you take the time to plow through it. It doesn't reduce the soundbite. All oh, right. wait, uh, you know what? You know, I forgot. I, I, this, I don't mean to sandbag you, but there's one other thing we ought to talk about, which is the yeah, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces decision in the Bergdahl case, which also came out oh, yeah. late last week. No, that's a great thing to mention. Let's uh, So let's go Guantanamo first. Yep. 
uh, Trumplandia with the Hatch Act. Yep. Um, and anything else to make bubble up. And then we'll do Miss Allison and Bergdahl. And then we'll talk about the Black Panther. Yeah, we got we have to, you know, sort of uh, pay our respects to Chadwick Boseman. And, and we'll do that during, we won't call it the frivolity segment. We'll do it in no. a non-topical segment. Um, Indeed. Non-topical. <laughs> I could name the podcast. <laughs> this podcast is non-topical. Yeah, exactly. Because everyone, right, so- everyone who's sitting there saying, would you guys please get to the merits of something? Okay, Al-Hila. Al-Hila. So Abdul Salam, Ali Abdul Rahman, Al-Hila versus Trump was decided on the 28th. It's a D.C. Circuit opinion by Judge Rao, joined by, uh, with concurrences from Griffith and Randolph. Um, Great so, panel. It's a, it's a thick opinion. There's a lot going on. Let me give some background about uh, so often in our engagement with these cases, people don't always pay any attention to the actual story underneath it. So Al-Hila is a particularly interesting Guantanamo detainee situation. He's, he's an, an older guy. He's from Yemen. Uh, and he was part of the larger diaspora of Arab foreign fighters who went to Afghanistan in the 80s to fight the Soviets. Um, and after the, the, in the aftermath of this, so insert here, you know, Lawrence Wright, the Looming Tower, or various other sources to get smart on this topic. Um uh, Al-Hila ends up back in Yemen, and the government's claim is that he becomes a key sort of logistical facilitating figure in the movement around the region of other uh, veterans who are coming out of Afghanistan and trying to figure out where they're going. And for those who aren't familiar with the mechanics of what went on during this period, there was a, a large number of people trying to go back sometimes to their countries of origin, where their countries of origin were very much not excited about the return of these of these persons who'd gone abroad to fight. Um, and so there was a lot of complexity in terms of helping people travel. Al-Hila, we are told the government thinks, was a key facilitator for this and, and maintained ties supporting particular Salafist extremist groups, uh, most notably, I would say, Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which was Ayman al-Zawahiri's group before he became more subsumed within Al-Qaeda. A critical part of the story is to understand that EIJ, Egyptian Islamic Jihad, um, was one of, and I would argue probably the the central and most operationally significant of the various Salafist extremist groups that formed the original Al-Qaeda alliance. Now, this is, if, you, if people who haven't studied the history of Al-Qaeda don't necessarily understand, they think it was just, oh, there's Al-Qaeda, it was a group. No, what it was is there were a number of different groups that were like-minded in various respects that formed the base, Al-Qaeda, as, as a type of coalition. And Zawahiri's group was among the more, shall we say, active and, and capable of those groups. Uh, there's another group in the story here. But anyways, so he's, he's in Egypt in 2002. Uh, and as the opinion puts it, uh, I think it's something, the paraphrase is, um, for reasons we, we don't have to get into here, he somehow was captured by somebody. He ends up turned over to the United States. He ends up at Guantanamo by 2004, and the government's claim is that he is not a member of Al-Qaeda, but is a substantial supporter and is detainable as such, uh, a substantial supporter of Al-Qaeda and associated forces. So um, now he's he's got his habeas case. Um, he's got objections relating to the evidentiary and procedural rules. He's, he's objecting, objecting to the, the idea that there's still continuing scope of authority that should have applied to him in the first place, or even if it did, whether it still lingers. It's, it's really sort of pulling together, Steve, a lot of the, the 
issues that we've seen across time in these cases. And I think if not for the constitutional issue that we'll talk about in a moment, we'd probably say, well, this is another in a similar line of cases we get now that continue to press whether you know the AMF authority still applies and, and what about substantial support? That's the, that's the, I was going to say that that's a big piece too. I yeah, actually yeah. think it, I actually think, but for the due process stuff, which we'll also talk about, the real headline here would have been the substantial support holding. Right. So maybe one way for for listeners to conceptualize all the pieces at work here: you have a set of issues that have come up a bunch, and we've talked about in other contexts on the show that have to do with whether the armed conflict continues. Uh, you've got a set of issues about whether the scope of detention authority uh, should extend beyond. Uh, alleged members of these groups to those who are not members but are substantial supporters. And then then the most uh, important piece of it, I think we agree, is the reaching of the mer- the circuit reaches the merits on whether constitutional protections other than the suspension clause, in this case in particular, the due process clause in both its procedural and its substantive aspect, whether anything other than the suspension clause applies to Guantanamo detainees and uh, and they take a strong view on this. And it's a view I know you don't agree with. So we'll we'll, we'll dig into it. Where should we start? Uh, should we kind of just walk through all the different arguments? And, uh, sure. Sure. Um, I think going in the sequence, the opinion does. Uh, it does first, substantial support first, right? Yeah, exactly. So there's Alhila argued that the way to read both the AUMF, but especially the NDAA for fiscal year 2012, which longtime listeners on the show know contains, you know, sort of a decade after the AUMF, Congress finally got along, uh, came along and, and identified here or what we actually think the grounds for detention are. Um, the, Alhila argues for a reading of the NDAA that would have required either that the support in question be directly related to hostilities as opposed to more indirect forms of support, um, and perhaps even that it ought to be construed as sort of a de facto member of the organization. Those are two different prongs. Um, and I actually, and I actually, I actually come out differently on those two. Okay, so let's split them. Let's split them then. Um, do you have any problems? So the court rejects both these both propositions, right? Uh, you, I, I'm going to guess that you're okay with the rejection of the idea that support has to be direct as opposed to indirect. Oh, I, the other way. Oh, okay. Uh, I, All right. Uh, let's so, talk about de facto membership first. So, so, that, that's I, an easy one. No, no. I, so I actually think I, I think support doesn't have to. I think the whole. So so let me read for a second, just because I don't think everyone has committed to memory section 1021A and B2 of the FY 2012 NDA. Let me just quote it for a second. And if you, you know, if you want to follow along at home, it's quoted in full in page seven of Judge Rao's slip opinion. So under the FY 2012 NDAA, the government may detain any. She says any person. It's actually any non-citizen. I mean, right off the bat, that's a pretty important distinction. Um, who was a part of or substantially supported al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or associated forces that are engaged in hostilities against the U.S. or its coalition partners, comma, including any person who's committed a belligerent act or has directly supported such hostilities in aid of such enemy forces. So Judge Rao makes, I think, the entirely correct textual and contextual argument that the or between part of and substantially supported, right, means you don't have to be a member. <laughs> Right, like you right. know, no, that, that's, I think it's so clear. I, yes, I, yes, I, yes, yes, yes. The the one part of Judge Rao's opinion that I find wholly unobjectionable. Um, well, the factual summary is pretty unobjectionable, but the one analysis, the one piece of the analysis I find wholly unobjectionable, is reading the word "or" to mean "or." Um, <laughs> and, and, 
um, and and to and to conclude that the whole reason why Congress wrote the statute this way, which by the way was codifying the emerging standard in the D.C. District Court and D.C. Circuit at that point in time, was to allow for cases where someone could be subject to detention who was not part of Al Qaeda or the Taliban, right? So so I'm okay there. Okay. Right. So you, here's where you, I get here's yeah. where I, here's where I get get queasy. Um, where I get queasy is. What does substantial support mean? And, you know, when the statute was enacted in December 2011, Marty Lederman and I wrote like 6,000 words on lawfare, um, trying to sort of unpack exactly what each of these things meant. And the key is like substantial support is not a term with any lineage um, in IHL, right? There's no, the, the, the cases and the government briefs that were sort of creating the standard and that were invoking the standard um, largely invented the term out of whole cloth. So the question is, what does substantial support mean? And what Marty and I argued at the time is that, to, is that unless the purpose of the NDAA was to depart from the international laws of war, substantial support has to, at the very least, mean some kind of belligerent act, Right, that to subject you to military detention as a belligerent, you have to engage in at least some kind of belligerent act and not just an act of support as an abstraction. So, Bobby, writing a check, is that substantial support? Writing a check is substantial support. So if I write a check, then I can be subject to military detention. If I write a check to an Islamic charity that's an affiliated group of Al Qaeda, I can be I'm I can be detained as an enemy combatant? That's no, because you're a citizen. So for okay, sorry. Uh, if I'm a non, I'm a Canadian national with no presence in the United States, and I send a check to an Islamic charity. I'm subject to military detention under the NDAA. If you, according to the NDAA, if you're either part of or you substantially supported Al Qaeda, so let's make it clear that it's a substantial support decision where you decide that what you like in the world is what Al Qaeda is doing, so you start funding them, and you get captured. Then, according to the NDAA, you're detainable. I disagree. So this is where I this is where I have a fundamental disagreement. I think with you and with Judge Rao, which is, you know, I don't think Congress understood in 2011 that it was radically expanding the category of who can be detained to include those who took no part in belligerence in belligerency whatsoever, right? And that's when you say expanding. So there's there's a question of what are we comparing it to, right? So I understand you and, and Marty's position is that the baseline should be international humanitarian law which raises some very serious, complex questions about who is detainable in international humanitarian law. I've got you know half a book written about this. Indeed. And it's if it's an international armed conflict, then if, you're, if you mean belligerent detention, analogous to combatants, that's one thing. But if you're asking, does international humanitarian law allow for deprivation of liberty more broadly on the security internment model, which over time becomes more and more the model, especially in Afghanistan, the model the United States military is actually using, then it's a much more complicated affair. But we're not, but we're not following the security in terms. I mean, but the whole second, Al Hila is not being. I mean, I listen. Trust me, I'm with you on the notion that security detention does not require belligerency, right? I mean, that's this is the Geneva Three, Geneva Four distinction, right? And I totally, I as you know, I agree with you on that. The problem is, is that Guantanamo is not a Geneva Four model, right? Guantanamo is, you know, um, detention based on belligerency. Well, right? I, would go, and in, I would go further in a way that doesn't necessarily agree with you and say it's it's not only really any of these models. It's a statutory U.S. domestic law model, at least under the NDAA. That's all there is. Now, I guess the, where I wanted to go with this was that I'm not sure that the right comparison is the IHL baseline. It, I, I'm 
I think the right way to think about what happened with the NDA was they were very much trying to codify the litigation position that had begun to succeed in the courts. And that position, as you and others have argued, may well be only defensible as a domestic law matter rather than as a reflection of international law. But unless one thinks that it has to be a reflection of international law, then it is what it is. It, it may be broader than so, international so the, law, so, so there, but I think it is meant to be broader. So, but that's the question Judge Rao never addresses. Like this is my so so. Just to be clear, right? You and I are having exactly the same debate that we we you and I specifically right. and lots of other people time. had ten years ago. And yep. I'm yep. I'm not trying to suggest that you must come around to my position. Like I think right, this right. is one of the things that you and I always disagree about, and that's fine. My point is, you would have no idea reading Judge Rao's opinion that this is actually contested. And you would have no idea that there's actually a serious debate about whether you can really sever the 2012 NDAA from any kind of international law understanding, or or at the very least, Bobby, whether you have to reject the notion. Like, it seems to me she has to do one of two things. She has to either say international law, uh, um, reading the NDAA the way we do is consistent with IHL, right? right. In which, Or it's not, but it's sufficiently clear that Congress intended the inconsistency so that charming Betsy and the other interpretive presumptions don't require us to resolve ambiguities in favor of IHL. Those both get you to the same place. She doesn't do either of them. Yeah, I agree. It'd be better to have engaged that. It would have been better. I, you and I would disagree, as you say, as to yeah. what the answers would have been, but it would have been a better opinion to talk about that. But it, but it gets worse because then she makes the same move that Judge Janice Rogers Brown made in Albahani for which she was subsequently heavily criticized, which is to say the better way to understand the term substantial support is to look to the military commissions acts and their definition of material support, right? And there are two separate problems there, right? One, it is crystal clear that when the MCA talks about material support, it was not meant to affect substantive detention authority. Indeed, there's expressed legislative history in the 2009 MCA that Congress was not trying to affect in any way the habeas standard. But two, the D.C. Circuit struck down relying on material support in the military commissions entirely because material support is not recognized as an offense under international criminal law. But why can't, if she, I'm not sure I see quite what the problem here is. If if Judge Rao is saying that in trying to figure out what is in scope and out of scope for the term uh, substantial support as enacted by Congress in the 2012 statute, that she, she's implicitly making the claim that this this language was adopted against the backdrop of these other uses, the domestic use, the military commissions use, which I think it was. Um, why is it problematic that those those earlier determinations weren't themselves intending on their own to create this effect? It's the NDAA in 2012 that creates that effect. And that makes it OK, I think. So I, I think it's it is weird to say that we can understand what Congress meant in 2012 by reference to a 20 a 2009 statute that specifically said it wasn't trying to affect the detention standard. Well, first so of all. The claim is not that the 2009 Congress was trying to have that effect. Let's concede they they didn't mean to have that effect, didn't want that effect. Which she hasn't mentioned, by the way. But Cong but can't Congress in 2012 say like, well, we want to do this thing now? Yes, this language, and yes. we're going to reach backwards and borrow that language. Yes, Bob. Listen, if Congress had said, if there was a separate provision in the NDAA that said, and by substantial support we mean whatever Judge Rouse says we meant, right? right. Um, 
I'd be done. I, I, I would be, I'd have policy objections, but no legal objections. The question is, what do we do in the face of the fact that Congress didn't say anything about what substantial support means, right? And Judge Rao runs back to the very mode of analysis of that provision that Judge Brown got in trouble for adopting in Al-Bahani without so much as acknowledging any of the baggage, right? Without acknowledging that Al-Bahani was basically um, marginalized by the subsequent en banc ruling, right? Without noting that there was a huge pushback against that analysis when it was uh, uh, put out in 2009. Like I just, there's a whole history here that this opinion is completely oblivious to. And I just, you know, given the, the implication, I mean, let me just sort of st- take a step back. Do you remember the Hedges case in New York? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. So the Hedges case was this, to my mind, real long shot lawsuit by a bunch of non-citizen like journalists and politicians and lawyers. And we such. might be detained under the NDAA. Right. And their principal argument, Bobby, was that the the provision that caused them the most risk of detention under the NDAA was the substantial support language. Right. And the government's response in Hedges was, no, no, no. Substantial support is not the same thing as material support. Right. And yet all of a sudden, here's Judge Rao saying, eh, it kind of is. I, I, I don't know what the government argued in Hedges. I, I'll have to go back and look at that. I, I, I'll take your word for it. That they may have said that, in which case there may be some overtime inconsistency in the government's position. But I guess my bottom line is in trying to figure out the otherwise undefined terms meaning in 2012, I think it is fair game to look back about prior similar uses I think that's what she's doing here. It, I have, I'm willing to accept that there are uh, earlier debates about the earlier uses that could have in a more fulsome opinion definitely have been aired, but I don't think it's fundamentally problematic. I, I guess what I think at bottom is that Congress in 2000, in the NDAA 2012, really was trying to map onto this earlier concept. Whatever the problems of that concept may be, I think that's what Congress was trying so to do here. All I will say is, first of all, I'm not sure that's what Congress intended. Second, if there's ambiguity, there are all kinds of other considerations that should have factored into the analysis, right? Whereas Judge Rao treats the matter as settled by plain text. But whatever, I mean, you know, I, we're not going to convince each other that either one's right. But but here's the bottom line, right? She says this on page 11, and this is something that the DC Circuit had never said before. She says, "quote." Involvement in hostilities has never been a prerequisite for detention under the AUMF. Um, That is a remarkable sentence, Bobby, and it's the first time any court above a district court has actually held that. And so whether you agree with me or whether you agree with you, right, Al-Hila in August 2020 is the first appellate precedent for the proposition that involvement in hostilities is not a prerequisite for detention under the AUMF. That's a huge deal, whether you think it's correct or not. Yeah, I guess I'm just not that surprised. Al-Hila himself has had prior adjudications at the lower level. This is obviously yeah. the First Circuit uh, opinion grasping this issue, but it's not, to me, it's not particularly surprising or novel that 20 years into this, where there have been people with Al-Hila's fact pattern, that is, uh, persons alleged to be associated with Al-Qaeda, but who were not uh, engaged in in combat zone activities themselves, are in scope. I, I definitely wouldn't view this as breaking any new ground, even if it hasn't actually been said at this level before. I mean, if it were, if it were otherwise, if the line had been drawn otherwise, now that would be something. Because people I, have been I, 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 on this basis for two decades. 
Listen, I just, I just think I, I've always wondered what the limiting principle is, right? And to me, the limiting principle historically on the military commissions and on the government's attention authority has been some degree of belligerency. And so, if all of a sudden we're going to create a body of law where belligerency is neither necessary, is just not necessary, right, to be amenable to these processes, then what's the line? What, I mean, so, can so you by this logic, what do you mean by belligerency in this context? Because I'm not sure I'm tracking you. If I so you know the a non citizen right I mean I want to go back to that a, a non citizen who writes a, who writes a check to an Islamic charity right like I agree that well, they're no, breaking any Islamic charity obviously would not count it, you're, no, to you an Islamic to charity and knowing that it's going to an AUM. Well, but you, but you know you know as much as as well as anyone that knowing in this context just means like if they had done research on the internet they would have figured it out, right? Actually, I think so, it's, an it's an interesting question whether in the detention setting as opposed to in in the why what, what what would require a tighter nexus in the detention context if not for some nexus to belligerency and hostilities? Well, because we're not actually applying eighteen U.S. Code twenty three thirty nine A. Or Judge Rao is she's saying we can look to material support for I mean, that's exactly the move she's it making. Doesn't go to the level of talking about what the nuances of the intent or knowledge analysis is, which is what we're talking about. <laughs> I just, I mean, I just, th- this is my concern though. Like, so where's, what's the limiting principle? I mean, so, so by that logic, like, you know, anyone who ever does any, anyone who ever provides even the most de minimis support to an Islamic charity with connections to Al Qaeda, expressly excluded. It has to be All right, more than de minimis. All right. I write a check to, I write, uh, my, 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 what my Canadian cousin writes a check for a hundred dollars to an Islamic charity that, if she had done any research, she could have discovered um, is connected indirectly to Al Qaeda. So you right? you've quite properly put your finger on the mens rea question. What if you could have known but you didn't? If we could just bracket that and set that, that's important. But let's set it aside and focus on the Canadian cousin who knows damn well what they're doing, and they would fine. Like- and so she writes a check. So I agree that she has broken the law. I agree that she's committed a crime, yep. right? And that she can be prosecuted in civilian court and perhaps even sent to jail, right? But she's subject to military force because she wrote a check? Well, if you say military force, it sounds like we might be saying that she could be attacked, which I don't think follows at all if without a lot more in your fact pattern. Okay. Uh, well, because you've placed your cousin in Canada. Um so setting that aside, is the person detainable if this cousin is on the let's just make it simple, out on the high seas on a on a COVID cruise and then somehow ends up in US military custody and the US military says, All right, we, we should put a Guantanamo. And and yeah, they, they put in a Guantanamo. And so the question is, if the government decided to apply the NDA to her, is that a fair reading of what Congress enacted? Is it substantial support? And I think it is. And now that's not necessarily a good thing. That's an incredibly broad authority. And it's not necessarily compatible, although I think it's a closer question than you might think it is with the international humanitarian law backdrop. But it's the domestic statute was written in a very broad way. Now, the question is, does the language, I'm going to go back to the quote here, does the language in the statute provide a narrowing principle by having this clause including any person who's committed a belligerent act, which I think would satisfy your concern, or has directly supported such hostilities in aid of such enemy forces. That's a much more ambiguous phrase. I'm not sure if that phrase would do it for you. I take it you would require, like, well, what more would it require before someone who's providing funding could be detained? I, I think it would be so, 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 
Judge Rao reads the including clause, right, as non-exclusive, right? right? That those are just illustrative. Rather than... Right, right. I actually think there's a plausible argument that those are that those are are exclusive, right? That 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 the point of those clauses was to say, here are the contexts beyond ordinary host, you know, here this is what we mean, right? Like for ex- you know, that that I, I think there's at least an I, I think there's an argument she should have at least grappled with. That I Congress might have met those. With, but I don't. I feel like she did grapple with it, and I think that the she, she said she says the text is plain. I think that the language, including any person who's committed a belligerent act or has directly supported such hostilities, would have the effect if it was treated as exclusive of chipping away at part of the the category part of membership. That there are some people who would be members part of, but who couldn't satisfy that limit. Unless, unless you read the, unless you read the including clause to just modify the second half of the disjunction, which I do. Yeah. We, but, and I don't, I, that's our fundamental difference on that. No, I, I mean, I think our fundamental difference is the notion that I actually think that detention has to be tied to some kind of belligerency and that, you know, Congress well, would well, have to be. Again, ex- again, how could writing a check ever be tied to belligerency on this model? Does it, it have to can't. be like this? <laughs> so, okay. So, what, I don't what, think what, funding. I don't think don't funding. Think hosti- I, I don't think funding hostilities subjects you to detention and and trial by a military commission. I think the very fact that at the time Congress passed this language, people like Al Hila were in fact detained on these grounds is is enough basis to conclude that Congress meant to encompass that. I think because Congress because Congress was aware of the classified government record that that was justifying his detention. Because Congress is is aware of the underlying fact pattern of the larger set. Are you are you saying that no one knew in 2012? I'm uh, saying Congress didn't pattern? know. I'm saying Congress didn't know. We, we never actually asked what Congress literally actually knew. We asked whether in you know this that in this context, Congress is assumed to know the thing about which they're regulating, even though Man, I'm, I'm, having, I'm having such flashbacks right now to the good old days when we actually used to fight all the time. I know. I got to say, I actually, I'm so pleased, aren't you, that like for at least a moment, we find something other than like destruction right. of the rule dear, of law. Dear, dear listeners, this is what, so when Bobby and I like came, we're coming of age as young law professors, right? Like this is what we fought about because literally, you know, <laughs> literally, because well, indeed, literally, because I, I mean, so, so in one respect, like, you know, thank you, DC Circuit, for for reminding us that there actually are things we used to disagree about. Exactly, and 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 since the, some of these things seem never to go away, I guess we'll be able to continue disagreeing. Well, there's that. All right. So yeah, meanwhile, we'll, we'll there's the there, there is this yeah. there is this other part of the of the DC Circuit. It's actually probably a much bigger deal than what we just spent exactly. like 20 minutes. We may have over. driven off people here. Let me do a quick lightning round on some of these other little elements because there's really like five or six subparts to the statutory scope question. So there's the thing we just argued about. Um, there was an interesting proposition raised about maybe the su- the support prong of detention should be construed narrow as to pre nine eleven, but not post nine eleven. That's that's super interesting. I, I don't quite know. I don't. I'm not persuaded by it because I think that uh, you could have conduct. You know what's interesting about Al Hila is the demonstrable conduct is all pre nine eleven. It's just these captured later, and so there's an attenuation issue that comes up. Um, I don't think the logic of saying that support had to be narrow beforehand, but could be broader later actually really has any basis in the statute. And it doesn't work if you apply it to a fact pattern where it's the day after the uh, AUMF is passed. Um, and then I, I was less troubled by this discussion. Yeah, yeah, there's a there's an interesting and important question here about what what we have variously called attenuation or or dissipation of, of detainability. This is something that back when Ben Wittes and, and I and others used to produce these 
Brookings reports, trying to explain to people, hey, here, here's here's all the mini procedures, the, the law of the habeas cases. We had a whole chapter on what would it take to dissipate, if you become t- detainable at one point in time, does just the passage of time or does new behavior, what makes the detainability go away? And, and Rao kind of talks about this a little bit saying, look, it's not, A, it's only been 16 months where we have a period from his last sort of logistical support act to when he got captured. There's no evidence of changed behavior in the meantime. Um, there's not a lot there, but that's a very important topic and it's really thorny as a theory and, and practical matter. Um, there's a claim by Ahila that EIJ and another group just weren't sufficiently associated with Al Qaeda. I think that's that's ridiculous, and it gets yeah. the short shrift that it deserves. Um, there's a sufficiency of the evidence review, and then there's the classic: has the the detention authority model unraveled altogether over time? And here we get the requisite uh, ludicky citation and and a sort of a broad endorsement from Judge Rao of the proposition that the political branches get to call the ball when it comes to when does the armed conflict phase end. Then it did, did, did you also notice footnote three where she talks about how detention authority is tied both to statutes and the Constitution? Uh, let's see. I'm looking at it. Since 2001, each president has relied on the AMF as well as constitutional. Oh, so you read that as sort of like a, little, a little wink, wink, like it's not just the AMF here, folks. Uh, could be. I mean, I've, I've often said. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's 2009 all over again. Well, on that, I'll just say that what if there had been no AMF with the uh, – I don't think the courts. I don't. I don't think the thing. I don't think detention today would look remotely like it does. I don't think 19 years later we'd still be in this situation. I do think that there is some sort of enhanced staying power and deference that comes with Congress being on on board. Uh, in, in the shorter term, I'm not sure how different it would have been at all. Um, so then, interestingly, you get to the constitutional issues, and she begins with the suspension clause issue as the vehicle through which to review the evidentiary and procedural complaints that Al-Hila has. And by the way, they're very interesting complaints. There's there's sort of a uh, a hearsay issue, and that's predictably not going to work here because there's tons of hearsay that has been tolerated over these decades in the habeas litigation. Um, but the more interesting part is this three-tiered SEPA-like or Classified Information Procedures Act-like process for handling the aspects of the record where the government wants to use classified information, where... There's some stuff that can be shared all the way. There's some stuff that's shared only with cleared counsel. And then there's some stuff that's not shared with counsel or the detainee at all. So you have these multiple tiers. And at each tier, Alhila says, this is a this is a problem both under the suspension clause and under due process. And, and the opinion goes through the merits of these arguments under the suspension clause, which seems very conventional and normal and not out of the ordinary as a way to proceed, very consistent with prior habeas case law. And and then on the merits proceeds to, you know, for good or ill, proceeds to reject the substantive arguments. But then they come to the same questions presented through the lens of the due process clause. And that's when Judge Rao says, hold on, no, there's there's no due process rights that this person can claim as a non-citizen held outside the sovereign territory of the United States. Whereas Judge Griffith, I, I think, would say, no, it's it's basically the same analysis. It's all intertwined. You could do it as a due process analysis, a suspension clause analysis. You just you just did the analysis, just do it again. Um Steve, I'm sure this is where you were most unhappy with the opinion. Let me know your thoughts. 
Well, I mean, let's start with how how Judge Rao reads the Supreme Court's decisions when it comes to extraterritorial. I mean, she starts on page, what, 23 by saying, in Johnson versus Eisentrager, the court held that the Fifth Amendment does not apply to aliens located outside the United States. Which Johnson it, no? No! Explain why that's wrong. Let me read what Justice Kennedy wrote in Boumediene, right? Um True, the court in Eisentrager denied access to the writ, and it noted that the prisoners at no relevant time were within any territory over which the U.S. is sovereign. The government seizes upon this language as proof positive that the Eisentrager court adopted a formalistic sovereignty-based test for determining the reach of the suspension clause. We reject this reading for three reasons. And then he spends like three pages explaining why. So here's the end of uh, page, what, 764. A constricted reading of Eisentrager overlooks what we see as a common thread uniting the insular cases, Eisentrager and Reed versus Covert, the idea that questions of extraterritoriality turn on objective factors and practical concerns, not formalism. That is literally what the Supreme Court said in 2008 in a case about the Guantanamo detainees. And Judge Rao says, nah, Eisentrager said this. Is there a difference? Because it is clear that in Johnson versus Eisentrager, the court in the actual case very clearly and sharply rejected the proposition that those non-citizens held outside the United States could raise Fifth Amendment claims. That I was, disagree with I disagree. I disagree think, with that. You don't, you I think it held that circuit had said they had Fifth Amendment due process rights. I know. And and Justice Jackson said, no, they don't. I, but okay, I've written like three papers about this. Okay, why would Jackson have spent twenty-two pages analyzing the merits of their cons of their of the of their objection? Right. The, to understand Eisentrager, you have to understand that in context, the only thing the civilian courts could review at the time in a collateral attack on a military commission, which is what Johnson versus Eisentrager was, was whether the military commission had jurisdiction. Right. If they had no due process right and no suspension clause right, if they had no rights whatsoever, why would Jackson have spent 22 pages reviewing whether the military commission, in fact, lawfully exercised jurisdiction over them? What would have been the defect if the answer was no? So I want to. So I'm going to go in and look for some of the language that I have in mind, but. The, what matters is that there is Wait, the language she quotes, right? The, the quote from Eisentrager is the Constitution does not confer a right of personal security or an immunity for military trial and punishment upon an alien enemy engaged in the hostile service of a government at war with the United States. But as Kennedy points out in Boumediene, that only came as part of a discussion of why it was beyond dispute that the petitioners in Eisentrager were alien enemies because they had been convicted by a military commission that lawfully exercised jurisdiction over their offenses, to wit, continuing to spy for Germany after Germany had surrendered. So I'm going to look for the language I had in mind. I'm going to come back to that. I, I'm not going to read for whatever she may or may not have decided. Um, what, it's like, what do you how say? Can, about, how can you quote Eisentrager like this without talking about Boumediene? I just don't understand that. Let's talk about Boumediene. She tries to distinguish it. She doesn't persuade you, obviously. What about uh, Verdugo, Urquidez, and other such cases as well? It's not just Johnson versus Eisenhower. So Verdugo does – I mean, listen, I think Verdugo does – I think Rehnquist's opinion in Verdugo does stand for the proposition that non-citizens outside the United States are not protected by the warrant clause of the Fourth Amendment. Um, but, of course, the circuits, Bobby, as you know, have also held that even citizens outside the United States – 
are not protected by the warrant clause of the Fourth Amendment. So, you know, I don't know that Verdugo, I mean, the whole, this is a common move by conservative judges to read Eisentrager, to cite Eisentrager and Verdugo and throw up their hand to just say, see, the Supreme Court has said no, no constitutional protections apply to nonsense out the United States. And I just don't know how you read Boumediene and come away from the proposition that like, that's how, you know, that kind of formalism is the appropriate mode of analysis. So setting aside formalism versus functionalism, I completely agree that Boumediene chops a huge hole and was widely understood at the time to chop a huge hole into Johnson versus Eisentrager, recasting it. I think I think it really is best understood as recasting it and, and reframing it. But it did do it. And that's the most recent decision. And I don't think Rao's opinion grapples with it as much as she should. However, there's a lot of language in here. So I'm, I'm thumbing through Jackson's opinion in Johnson versus Eisentrager. There's a lot of talk about the scope of the Fifth Amendment, the doctrine that the term any person in the Fifth Amendment spreads its protection over alien enemies anywhere in the world. Engaged Wait, in alien enemies engaged in? Yeah. Yes. And that's the fact pattern that the government alleges is true about al no, no, but No, but this is exactly the point Kennedy made that Rao just jumps right over. It was conceded in Eisentrager. The, the Alhira is adjudicated, so you end up in the same place. No, it hasn't been because the whole point of the the whole point of this part of the opinion is that he has no due process rights. Right? It's, it's circular reasoning. No, 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 in Eisentrager, no, 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 no. the guys were convicted. Fact, the twenty two pattern that that I just cited that you seized on there when I said alien enemies is is analogous to what the habeas determination on the merits had determined. As to they, they I completely I completely disagree with you on he's, this. He's that, a non citizen. That determined he was detainable based on his support for the force. Are you drawing the distinction between support and membership here? Is that no? I'm drawing a distinction between a habeas standard where all the government has to show is a preponderance of the evidence, and the fact that in Eisentrager the defendants had been convicted by a court that the Supreme Court spends 20 pages saying had jurisdiction to convict them of war crimes. For Jackson, it was critical. I, I don't know how. I mean, listen, don't take my word for it, folks. Go read Eisentrager. It's 339 That's U.S. Exactly 753. But I you're, think, skip, you're, skipping, you're skipping over. Bobby, why does Jackson spend all. How can I be skipping over anything? Well, so let me just ask you a question. How? Why does Jackson spend all of this time in his opinion? On, on, on the, uh, analyzing whether the military commission in Eisentrager lawfully exercised jurisdiction over the defendants, if the whole point of the opinion is that they just weren't protected by the Constitution at all, are you are you saying that Jackson, despite all the talk about how the Fifth Amendment and other provisions, and he, and he talks about other things by analogy, how they don't apply, that he actually was saying, well, they do apply, and I'm implicitly conceding that, despite what I said. No, no, I'm saying something, I'm saying something different. I'm saying, I'm saying. He's saying there's no Fifth Amendment issue here because these guys are undisputed alien enemies. How do I know they're undisputed alien enemies? Because they were convicted by a competent military commission that I've just explained lawfully had jurisdiction to do it. I think I think what they were convicted of wasn't being alien enemies, first of all. That that part was just obvious. These Bobby, were, they, Bobby, they, no, they challenged officers. they challenged the they weren't military officers. Wait, hold a second. No, sir. They Sorry, were civilian. That, that was a misstatement. Calm, calm, calm. That was they were civ- they were civilian contractors of the German government working as espionage working as spies in in Japanese occupied China in World War II. And the whole their whole objection to their military commission was that they were not and they were not, not subject to trial That's right. That's right. So, if Alhila were tried by military commission and convicted, then would your objection to this analogy go away? 
Yes, I think I think if he were tried, if he were tried, if he were tried by military commission, and on appeal the Supreme Court affirmed that the military commission or the DC Circuit affirms that the military commission lawfully exercised jurisdiction over him, I would take the conviction as conclusive proof that he was an alien enemy, right? Who therefore was within on all fours with the Eisentrager petition. But Bobby, keep in mind. Yeah, but, but so habeas say, can't do that. Habeas isn't good enough to do that. I don't think so because the, the if the whole point of the habeas is to dispute whether in fact he is. First of all, the standard's different, right? Preponderance of the evidence is not the same thing as beyond a reasonable doubt, right? But Obviously. second, it's all right. But it's also just in this context, right? I mean, this is in the oral argument in Hamdan, right? The the government had made this exact argument in Hamdan, and you know. Justice, I think it was Justice Souter, had this whole long exchange with Paul Clement, where he got Clement to concede that Eisentrager is a case with, quote, an awful lot of alternative holdings, unquote, right? This is like, I just, I understand why people are inclined to read Eisentrager the way that you do and the way that Judge Rao does. My only point is that there is an incredibly um, accessible reading of Eisentrager that is radically different, that is much more consistent with Boumediene, and that gets nary a mention in Judge Rao's opinion. Fair enough. The last thing I want to say about this is that if they were if if Alhila was prosecuted and convicted and that put him in the Eisentrager box of not having due process rights, it just seems odd to me that the way it could work is that that would result post prosecution in no due process rights. I think I think you misunderstood me. Determination on the evidentiary merits, reaching the same point about was this person connected to the enemy couldn't do that. that just- I, think you're mis- I think you're misunderstanding me, right? It's not that you have no due process rights. It's that there's nothing for the due process clause to do at that point, right? That like what Jackson, the, what Jackson was saying, my my reading of Eisentrager, and I realize it's not the only one, and that's fine, is that Jackson's saying, guys, these guys were convicted by a military commission. Did the commission have jurisdiction? Here's why I think the answer is yes. Once we accept that these are enemy Na- you know, nationals of a country with which we're at war, convicted by a military commission that had jurisdiction, there's nothing for the due process clause to do here. Like there's just, there's no work for the due process. And so I, if that, if the same thing happened to Alhila, then yes, I think there'd be nothing for the due process clause to do. The problem is, as Kennedy himself says in Bumedi and Bobby, there's a difference between the role of the courts when there's been a, a conviction Right in a court that has, you know, Kennedy says a court of record, but I would go further and say a court of record or a court whose process has been sustained on appeal, right? That those people are in a different category from people who have never been convicted in a court at all. So listeners should just go read Johnson versus Eisentrager. We definitely have a fundamental disagreement about the best reading of it, and that's okay. And I have a whole and I have a whole chapter um, called uh, what is it called? Uh, Eisentrager's Forgotten Merits: Military Jurisdiction and Collateral Habeas, which tries to explain why I think this reading of Eisentrager is totally wrong. So let's come back now, having marked our disagreement on this one, <laughs> fairly fairly clearly marked our disagreement. Um, what else is there to say about her decision at this point to try to draw this sharp line between so so you and I right. Median, uh, recognizes the suspension right. clause applies, but she says that's just a vehicle and and authority to issue relief if there's a substantive right to invoke. And she says, despite having just done a meaningful review, uh, substantive review under the suspension clause, she says there's there's no basis for the Fifth Amendment to, to apply here. Judge Griffith, I think, shows a more practical pathway. Judge, Judge Griffith, who's retiring today. Happy retirement, Judge oh, Griffith. Is that right? So yes. a shot out the door, a shout out as he shoots out the door with this shot and says, look, it's it's the same thing. And, and well, that, but, for, for me, I have so much trouble, and I'm interested in whether you agree with this. 
I have, I cannot see where finding that procedural or substantive due process applies here gets you the right to something more with more bite and different than what Rao herself concedes the suspension clause clearly requires, which is a meaningful review. So this is where I totally get off the train with the majority, right? So so I'm not surprised that Judge Rao follows this whole, I think, largely, you know, the, I, I wouldn't say debunked, but at least this whole um, heavily criticized school of how she reads Eisentrager and Verdugo, fine, whatever, not surprising. Yeah, you're but, stuck because I follow that train too. You don't want to be too mean to me right here on the show. I'm not being mean to you. I, I'm just, I'm just telling you. you. That's what I'm saying. You and I have disagreed about this since Boumediene, okay? Yeah. I like That's yeah. fine. Um the you know and one of us is right and the other one is you um the but the where i really get off the judge rao train is i think griffith is absolutely right that she didn't have to reach the issue right and and in that regard this harkens back to albahani where as you might recall the panel was um brown Kavanaugh, and williams the the recently deceased um, highly regarded former judge Stephen Williams. And Williams did the same thing. Williams wrote this separate concurrence where he says, I don't understand why we've reached out to decide all these questions when we can affirm this habeas petition on such narrow grounds. Yep. And I, so, I completely agree that it was enough to say, look, we just went through the whole hearsay and ex parte yep. evidence issue. We went through it line by line under color of the suspension clause. But why would it be different? And, and Judge Rao's answer is, it's very interesting because she kind of flips it around in and having fended off and pushed away due process, then explains why it is different by hinting that, well, maybe due process would be much more demanding um, and, and kind of castigates Griffith for not having authority for the proposition they'd be the same. But of course, I want to flip that around and say, on what in what universe would they be different? Right. Right. So, so it's all unnecessary, which is, which is to me, like what, even if you are on team Bobby, right. Um, right. Team Bobby, I think would be the first to point out, there's no point reaching all this stuff if we don't need to, especially because in Bobby, here's the place where I think you and I completely agree, which is the implications of this opinion, if left intact, right. For the military commissions. Um, oh, big time. It has huge right. implications there. And so footnote in footnote six, right. On page what, uh, the, the 29, right. Um, uh, Judge Rao, who was not on the D.C. Circuit at the time Al-Balul was decided, right, um, uh, responds to Al-Hila's argument that the D.C. Circuit in Al-Balul recognized that at least the ex post facto clause applies to Guantanamo in striking down material support and solicitation yep. charges yeah. as violations of the ex post facto clause under plain error review. I agree. It kind of gives the game away. And then she says... Um, well, the en banc court explicitly decided to de- decline to decide that issue and instead rely on the government's concession that Abulul was entitled to bring ex post facto claims, um, right? And in Abulul, we had no occasion to consider the extraterritoriality of the due process clause, even though it's like, so you're going to have a formalistic approach to due process, but not to ex post facto? Like, it's just, it doesn't fly. I, I do agree that if, if you accept that the ex post facto ruling was really a ruling, was really a holding, yes. not, yes. and not just sort of the effect of a, of a litigation concession, um, then you're off to the races here. You can't start drawing these lines. Um, unless, of course, you think that the functional test of Boumediene actually supports, but she's not doing that. But coming back around to this, this critical point, so so Rao is saying that, look, if I'm wrong and the Fifth Amendment can be invoked, if due process does apply here, then this idea that it might demand, what, a higher standard of proof? Uh, actually, I don't, I don't think that can be squared with Hamdi, by the way, uh, that it might demand a different result to the admissibility of hearsay. 
very hard to see how that could possibly be, that it might demand a different result to the ex parte access to evidence rule. Um, I just don't buy any of that. And I think it does come back to this idea that when Boumediene decided that the suspension clause, and maybe even only just the suspension clause, when it decided it required a, a meritorious, a merits-focused review that had meaningful opportunity to respond, et cetera, that brought with it, as a practical matter, that brought with it whatever due process was going to bring with it. Because habeas review of detention and procedural due process in liberty cases, this has a historical matter. These things have always been intertwined. The whole point of it was to ensure some modicum of process. So I just don't see how it's how it's the right pathway to take. And it feels like, I agree with you here, it feels like it was an effort to grab the issue and to try to have this spillover effect in other contexts. I agree with you. Because, because, because you've got the, the, a friendly panel with Rao and, and Randolph. I think the, but so so on the commission's front, I mean, I, I don't think we can overstate just how significant a DC circuit panel holding that the due process clause doesn't apply is to the military commissions, because now that prejudges any number of, constitutional objections that the 9-11 defendants might make, that al-Nashiri might make, because the military commission trial judges are bound by the D.C. Circuit. It's a superior court. And and there's a spillover implication here for other rights, Sixth Amendment rights, for example. Absolutely. So so does this go on bonk? Yes. If not, okay, so just full yes and... (laughs) Well, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, listen. I the sure. I mean, Rao and Randolph. Like, if if you ask me, what is the worst panel you could possibly draw on the D.C. Circuit for the Guantanamo detainees? <laughs> I mean, I would add. I mean, I would add probably Katzis, right? Or you know, or um, right. So, but you know, Rao and Randolph with a Griffith concurrence. Like the fact that Griffith wrote separately to say we don't have to do this. Yeah, yeah. I think is 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 a shout to the on. So let's talk about the, so the D.C. Circuit as of tomorrow. Right, we'll be we'll have eleven. I mean, today and tomorrow we'll have eleven judges. Today it's Griffith. Tomorrow it's Walker, mm-hmm. um, who's already been confirmed and has just been hanging out, waiting for Griffith to retire. Which, by the way, I think is weird, but that's another another story. Um, so it's eleven judges. I mean, I I don't you know Randolph. I think under the rules would be allowed to participate in the on banc um, since he was on the panel. So I guess it's twelve judges. But like, I don't see there being six votes on the current D.C. Circuit, even including Randolph, for the proposition that the Due Process Clause categorically doesn't apply to the Guantanamo detainees, especially if it doesn't, especially if it's not necessary to the result. So in a weird way, this could actually address uh, sort of a a 10-layer dip problem, which is the protracted nature of everything trying to come out through the military commissions process. We might actually, might get an en banc ruling that gives us some strong clarity on the applicability of (laughs) the bill bill rights. The commission's process without having to go through the commission dip. It's good. No, it's going to be worse. They're going to go on bonk and say we didn't have to decide. You know, they're, they're going to go on bonk to undecide the due process question. Yeah, more likely than say like, it, well, no, I don't know. I, I, I could, I can imagine. I that- mean, we're, we're only, we're only in this mess in the first place because the last time uh, right. Judge Millet right refused to actually decide the matter the first time it was presented. And maybe, and maybe there'll be a little sense that. Gosh, maybe they ought to just go ahead and decide this one, and it'll have its spillover effects. All right, so watch this space. We'll be back as soon as we know what's going on with the en banc, because this is a big deal for yes. the commissions. Um, yes. Uthman. We have Uthman. This, so uh, it was Judge Lamberth, right? Judge Lamberth. Judge Lamberth, UT grad. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, Judge Lamberth, uh, on, on the return of this issue before him, uh, a second opinion by Uthman, or second petition by Uthman, and he, he decides... I'm not 
bound by the prior determination that it is procedurally proper to bring this petition. And it, but it's interesting, there's a little res judicata within Gitmo habeas discussion that cites you like a thousand times. And here, <laughs> despite you and I agreeing sharply earlier as to Alhila, I'm entirely with you here. I think it's not even a close call. I think you're exactly right that when a detainee wants to raise a changed conditions argument, that is an argument that the underlying armed conflict from which they're being, for which they're being detained, uh, has unraveled, of, of course you can bring that again. It's not the same question. It'd be, it'd be crazy not to allow that. You and Judge Lambert agree. Uh, and Andrew Kent does not. So so just to, to hit, back, hit the Wayback Machine again, way back in 2012, um, Andrew Kent, our friend and colleague from Fordham, um, wrote an essay in the Penn Law Review Online, Penumbra, um, good title, um, uh, uh, the title of which was, Do Boumedian Rights Expire? Question mark. And Andrew's proposition was that we should be thinking about habeas in this context in much the same way that we think about habeas in the criminal context. And so I wrote a rather... Um, sharply worded response um, suggesting that I did not think that made any sense, that if you actually look at the jurisprudence surrounding res judicata and habeas, all of the justifications for applying it in the post-conviction context, where, by the way, it hasn't always been applied, totally collapse in the executive detention context. Um, and let's just say that Judge Lambert surveys the literature in his opinion in Uthman and, and concludes that one of us has the better of the argument. All right. I, I, I was completely persuaded by it, and I enjoyed getting to see that actually spelled out. And it's nice. But, but, but then nice Uthman loses. Agree. Yes. Okay. But then Uthman loses. But then Uthman loses. Yeah. and uh, On the merits. It, it's a lot of the same issues. The, to me, what's interesting is, of course, this drops at roughly the same time as Alhila. And I feel like the, the way to look at the way Judge Lambert handled the, the due process arguments that were very similar that Uthman raises is a lot like what Judge Griffith was saying we should just right. do. And Assume due process applies and hold it. Yes, you're gonna you're going to ask the same questions about the same evidentiary and procedural rules, whether you say what you're doing is suspension clause review or procedural due process, and it, it's yeah. There you go. Okay, I think we've probably said enough Guantanamo stuff. But, but no, but, but I'm with you that the Uthman opinion is is uh, you know leaving aside that I love you know when a judge agrees with me about anything because it's rare, um, right? I think you're absolutely right that the real upshot of the Uthman opinion is it's a model of exactly how to decide these cases without going the Rao route, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. And it's it's the route I feel like they've been using yes. all these yes. years. Yes, yes, 100%. Exactly. All right. All right so just we'll close by saying, uh, because we don't always go meta about what we're doing, I, I think that discussion was uh, as, as boisterous as we both got. It was like such a good example of how you, you can just discuss these things and, and I know. disagree, and it's okay. Um, you may have the better reading of Eisentrigger. Maybe I have the better reading. Who knows? We let people decide for themselves, but it's just such a it's such a shame that it, it feels like it's so rare that people can I know. This isn't what we do anymore. passionately disagree, and it's okay. Right. Um, uh, all right. Let's, I think we'll you know, you know, you know who You know who we should get on the podcast now that we have Zoom? Oh, we should that? get Justice Jackson's ghost on the podcast and ask him what he meant. Is, is Justice Jackson's ghost, is that like a John Q. Barrett thing or what is it? Ooh, I don't know. You know what we should Well, John, John. So John Q. Barrett at St. John's is, is a, is the leading, right? Justice Jackson scholar and is a mensch and a wonderful guy. Oh, yeah, and John, awesome. yeah. but one of the things that makes John such a fantastic scholar is he's actually incredibly um, careful 
right about the WWRJD question, right? Um, you know, <laughs> he actually is very reluctant to engage in, you know, what would Justice Jackson do type of speculation. Um, but if, if you think we could lure him in? <laughs> uh, not to speculate, but, yeah. you know, just to chat with him about Jackson sometime, that would be fun. We should. That, if we're going to be on Zoom for the long haul, we actually should start thinking about inviting some more friends to come hang out really? with us. Uh, and if uh, if the Trump administration would give us less other things to talk about, we'd be able to oh fill in gosh. with these deep dives. Let's speaking talk- of the Trump speaking yeah. of the Trump administration, but we're tight on time now, so we're going to go quickly through the Hatch Act situation. In part because <laughs> it actually should be pretty straightforward. So, it is, Steve. Is there anything to say other than we just witnessed an extraordinary series of repeated aggressive violations of the Hatch Act by all the people who are not the president? involved in the whole convention process that touched on repeatedly the use of federal property, the use of federal assets for a campaign. Federal staff, federal personnel, right? Um, The naturalization ceremony as a campaign prop is a violation of the Hatch Act, right? I don't, did you see, did you see? You can't even catalog it all. It's so mad. It was massive in its breach of federal law. Is there any counter argument um, so the Office of Special Counsel tried to suggest that parts of the White House lawn are not covered by the Hatch Act, to which my response is, like, if that's the best you can do at that point, um, I, I don't know if you saw, Ch- did you see Chad Wolf on the Sunday shows yesterday? No, I, I, I can't watch He said that. He said he, he didn't know that the naturalization ceremony was going to be part of the convention. I was like, oh, so you just thought it was like a coincidence that you were having a naturalization ceremony for four people at the White House with the president and all of these TV crews and cameras and lights? I mean, you're either the, the most gullible idiot this side of, oh, I don't know, Mark Esper, right? Or you're lying. Well, look, the uh, the worst of all, I think, was the who was it that said it doesn't matter outside of Washington? Mark, the chief of staff, yeah. Mark Meadows. That, that to me was it – is, it is unacceptable to take – ever take the position that a violation of law – if you can see there's a violation of law, which I granted I'm sure he's not actually conceding. But to suggest that, look, it just doesn't matter. No one cares about that. I'm sorry. I know, there is a concept of desuetude. That we use for things like it's illegal to tie your horse up on that side of the street or walk an alligator down the sidewalk. We don't do that about federal laws that are routinely enforced against less powerful people. Yeah. Full stop. And, no, and, and, and the hat, I mean, the Hatch Act, right? The Hatch, tens of th- millions of government employees, if you include the military, right? There are millions of people every day who have to comply with the Hatch Act and, and who are reminded of it and who face significant and who face significant consequences and discipline if they don't, right? The As I tweeted, I, I tweeted this last week, it's not that people outside the Beltway don't care about the Hatch Act. It's that the people who are violating the Hatch Act don't care about the Hatch Act. And the reason well, and why they don't pre- care- They're predicting that what we're describing as a bug will be deemed a feature, right. as it will be by a certain percentage of the population that lo- that kind of somehow interprets this as owning the other side. Um, you know, part of the problem here, I think, is the fact that we use this nomenclature, the Hatch Act. If this was routinely described as the Corruption of Government Act, it might be a little harder to dismiss. Or or the or the spending your taxpayers on spending your taxpayer dollars to fund Trump's campaign act. Yep, that that's gotta have an acronym. Um, yeah. All right. All right. Uh, we are we're getting low on time. So can I can I propose that we punt Macellus and yeah. Bergdahl to next week? Yes. Because we'll I actually because I would love I would love for you to actually look at the Bergdahl decision because it's actually a really interesting okay. ruling. We'll 
about and, and, and I think Marcellus really deserves an unpacking because it's it is high time given current circumstances that we have a uh, a Brandenburg discussion. Um, two other quick notes just before we get to our, our not frivolity but our not substantive stuff about about Chadwick Boseman. Um, first is you know I, I don't know if you saw this letter about how the DNI is going to stop providing in person briefings to Congress about election security. Yeah, and I, there was a response. Apparently, Rubio is now saying that he has spoken and that that's been walked back. Has it? That's oh, what, good. He, well, it's you'll love it because the the statement from Chairman Rubio excoriates uh, the committee for leaking information, etc. But then at the end says it. But then at the end says it's unacceptable to not have you know, briefings, et cetera. Briefings where we can like ask questions. And, and I've been assured that, that there will be briefings. So right. now we'll see if, we'll see if that gets corrected, but if it does get corrected, uh, glad to see the committee pushing back for its rights. That was, that was a very disturbing sign of what could be coming. Uh, all right, and then uh, last but not least, we we can't we can't allow to go un, unnoticed the the president's statement that he intends to nominate Chad Wolf to be the Secretary of Homeland Security. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we can't go without vacancies reform, can we? Well, so so just to, to just because we talked about it so much on the show, I just want to say um, the president has every right to nominate Chad Wolf to be the Secretary of Homeland Security. Um, uh, to me, this is actually a pretty powerful concession by the White House that they're worried that his current status as acting secretary is legally vulnerable. Is there does does stating the intention to nominate him does that change any of the status? Yeah. Okay. And even even and because he's because he's serving under the Homeland Security or because he's putatively serving under the Homeland Security right. Act right. and not the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, even formally nominating him doesn't change his status. Right. Like, that's, okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. Whereas in a different department, it might have been different. Well, or or if he had been if he had been named under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, right, nominating him would actually preclude him from continuing to serve as the exactly. Act. Exactly. You get a pop out at that point. All right. Um, that's a lot. It's crazy. And then there was the incredibly tragic passing of Chadwick Boseman at the age of 43. Yeah, this is colon cancer is awful. All cancers are awful. This is particularly awful in, in part because it's, it's relatively easy for it to go undetected. Now, I have no idea. I don't know what the, the pattern of diagnosis and treatment was for him. But as everybody's been observing, a, uh, it's not that people are reacting. Maybe people are reacting a little bit to the nobility of the roles he repeatedly plays, but that's not it. Those roles seem perfectly consistent in their nobility with who he was as a person. Um, the the number of examples that have been you know widely circulated on Twitter. It's so inspiring to see such a wonderful person, and it makes it so painful that that person's been taken at such a young age. People, uh, especially, uh, I, I gather that. I could be wrong about this, but I gather maybe men are more susceptible and that African-American men are more susceptible to colon cancer. I don't know if that's right or not. Everybody get colon cancer screening. It's clearly something nobody wants to go do and something we all at certain age thresholds need to do more and more of. And I completely agree. I would just say um, I am stunned to discover, right, that he was battling cancer while he was doing all of this. I mean, that's just remarkable. It's just it's mind blowing. Do you I guess it's it's, uh, you know, looking ahead for for the Marvel franchise, his iconic role is T'Challa. I mean, I assume they're going to eventually they're not going to talk about it for a long time, but I assume they'll recast. That is quite some big shoes to shoes fill. to fill. That's right. Um, and that's a that's going to be sort of a 
generational scale. Or maybe, quality. or maybe, or maybe you don't. Maybe you come up with a, a different storyline for the movies where T'Challa, you know, dies tragically and suddenly, and is replaced by you know some other relative. You wonder if they if they cooperate with the estate, would they be allowed to uh, you know deepfake that to give him some sort of exit role, exit scene? Okay, wait. So speaking of deepfakes, wait. Can we? I'm sorry. Can we talk about Steve Scalise? Oh, that was awful. Yeah. Okay. So pivoting back to. Uh, sorry. Back I just. To I, I just I, I'm sorry. I, I don't. I don't. And I don't mean to cut the Chadwick Boseman part short. I mean, I just. I just. I'm at a loss for words about just how tragic his past. So this is the uh, the circulation by Scalise of a video where they took what is what I would argue. So as you know, I've written a lot with with Danielle Citron, my beloved friend, about deepfake technology and. Both the benefits and the harms associated with this. We were out there pretty early on this. One of the things Danielle and I always cite is one of the beautiful things that deepfake capacities can do is to restore real voice to people like ALS victims, ALS, uh, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease victims, uh, who've lost their ability to speak and who, with the right who still have who still have full mental function and, and can use computer voice assist. Uh, usually, gives you that that mechanical computerized voice sound. Deepfake capacity, when applied to audio, can restore your voice so that when you use your eyes to cue words on a computer, it can read out in your voice. So there was this statement by someone in his own voice who otherwise couldn't speak. Addy Barkan. And this video, I don't, do we have, we don't have any idea who did it, right? Who altered it? I don't know who, I mean, Scalise is, Scalise is the one who put it out. I don't think we know if his people made it. Right. So somebody went in and altered it and altered took advantage of the very technology now maybe it was done with a cheap fake i'm sure it probably was but they they used the same conceptual technology idea to take his real voice and to make him say something he never said and to turn it into an anti-biden thing and then that was circulated there is something viscerally revolting there's something revolting about falsely imputing words or changing the impression of what real people said into what they never said and did, but to do it in this context is, I think, where you're, where, where you're using where you're using the technology that that individuals with this disability rely upon against them. Yeah, it's, is, a, it's a special victimization that you just kind kind of can't. So, believe. so one would think in a normal universe that when the number two ranking House Republican found out that he was responsible for, if not the creation, then at least the widespread dissemination of such a video. That he would fall on his sword and apologize and take immediate amends. Well, yeah, say, um, say like I'm horrified someone would do this. I'm super mad someone induced me or tricked me into doing correct. such a terrible correct. thing. Here's what Scalise tweeted last night. Quote, while Joe Biden clearly said yes twice to the question of his support to redirect money away from the police, we will honor the request of Addy Barkan and remove the portion of his interview from our video. Period. Full stop. End of tweet. Where the fuck is the apology? Well, Ed, that's no apology, um, and it's it's not adequate to to what happened there. And it's a it's a terrifying signpost. When when Danielle and I first, I think our initial piece of lawfare, God knows how long it's been now, but you know, we began to enumerate potential abuses, and of course, it, this seems sort of obvious now that it's happening. But the the thing we were uh, flagging would sort of come first is people trying to trying to put people real people in the position of endorsing ideas or, or opposing ideas that are absolutely not what they said or did. It's happening. And, and maybe it wasn't done with generative adversarial network technology. So maybe we shouldn't be using the words deep fake. Who knows? Who cares? Doesn't matter. It's the disinformation problem that 
people think we've been through the ringer on this? No, 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 my friends. We've been at Kitty Hawk on this. We're probably barely at the biplane stage at this point. There's there's a, a world of pain coming with the ability to artificially portray people doing or saying things they never said or did. And if it's okay for public officials to not even apologize when they either either they got busted for it or let's be more charitable and say, oh, it was revealed that, that a mistake was made. If if it's not if we don't come down like that on a ton of bricks, the the Overton window on what you can kind of do and tolerate and get away with just gets wider and wider. So I guess this is all along with saying, uh, dear Marvel, do not CGI Chadwick Boseman into any future Black Panther movies. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, I, that's an interesting question. Actually, if the estate's down with it and if they can... Yeah, yeah. No, I, know, I know, I know, I know, yeah, I, know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I didn't mean to take it. But um, did you see, by the way, the, the tweet that was sent out from Chadwick Boseman's account um, right, announcing his passing yeah. um, is now the most retweeted and most liked tweet in the history of Twitter? Wow. It, it just shows you, like, the man touched so many people it was unbelievable and and, and i want to say I, I know that everyone's gonna i know everyone's gonna associate um him with black panther and i totally get that i thought his portrayal of both jackie robinson uh-huh. and thurgood marshall were actually like in separately incredible feats Absolutely. of gravitas no it's a, it's a hell of a body of work yes and and someone who's gone way too soon yep all right on that sad note oh boy 2020 hey 2020 you suck well did you see the thing there's like an asteroid that's gonna like (laughs) just miss the earth like the day before the election Uh. (sighs) on that uplifting note he is at bobby chesney i am at steve underscore vladic we are at nsl podcast um happy august everybody we will be back with you hopefully next week hopefully not before then but you know the way things are going you never know um stay safe out there adios